watch uh, you, you watch that WeWork show on Apple TV at all? We crashed. We just got into Apple TV, so we're just finishing. Um, what's the morning news? Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I would, the reason why I was thinking about it is Anne Hathaway plays this uh, actress who uh, former actress who's now married to the guy who served WeWork, and she does these voice exercises in the show to like warm up. And I'm like, damn, what are those things that she did? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products. And of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, CEO of Spiro AI. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but we are not talking about that today. Instead, we're talking with Jonathan Thompson, the VP of sales at an old school distributor called E.B. Bradley. Those are his words, not mine, who's joining me today to talk about managing multiple companies during the buying cycle. And if you think that you have a complicated sales cycle, you have nothing, nothing at all. That's what we're going to talk about with Jonathan. Sometimes he waits years between when something happens, between the next step is, and he's got all kinds of crazy people involved. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the movies. We're going to talk about sales and maybe even work a little flamenco uh, guitar sound into the uh, podcast if we can do it today. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Adam. Hey, let's talk about you for a second. Actually, let's talk about you for the whole show. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, E.B. Bradley and, you know, what the background is there? Absolutely. So um, E.B. Bradley has been around for 90 years. We were founded in the in the Great Depression almost by accident. The founder of our company, E.B., Earl Bertrand Bradley, was in college in the Midwest and his friend from college and kind of lifelong friend stayed out there. He moved back to California and his buddy needed help servicing some of the customers in California with a, a drawer slide product, right? Everybody uses them every day. You pull your drawers in and out. You can't, you can't do it without that. So he started helping them and eventually that blossomed into this massive business on the West Coast over 90 years, kind of by happenstance. And it happened with really customer demand, right? When he started filling orders for these drawer slides, people just started asking him, Hey, can you get me this? Can you get me that? So, so, so one man couldn't open up a drawer <laughs> and that's how this whole business got started. I think it was actually one man couldn't, uh, couldn't ship drawers, drawer slides from, uh, from Minnesota, I believe it was Minnesota or Michigan. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, and, and now I'm here. And, and what are the range of products that EB Bradley helps with today? You know, our product architecture is pretty vast. We have over 27,000 unique SKUs, 300 vendors sourced from all across the globe. And we service a lot of different markets. But if you were to kind of generalize it, I would say it's the interior building industry. So when you walk into any space, whether it be a, a hospital, a school, your own kitchen, there's a good chance that if you're on the West Coast, a lot of those products came through our facilities and were manufactured by our partners. Well, it must have been a good time to be in business over the past couple of years. There's been a lot of renovations. Everywhere that I see, people are redoing stuff like that. Has that been the case? It has. You know, our business is pretty well balanced between commercial and residential. Normally, when one of those environments is down economically, the other tends to be up. So we've been very fortunate to have kind of stable growth and steady growth throughout the history of our company, taking recessions and, and certain things into consideration. The last few years, yeah, it's been interesting to, to see. Sales numbers are obviously through the roof and the shelves are empty because you're selling more and you can't get 
the products that you need as quick as you need to. But we've been fortunate. Like I said, that product architecture really helps us out because we have alternatives to fill the needs of our customers. I joke that it's very easy to be a mediocre sales rep in this kind of economy. You can you can definitely hide behind the numbers of demand. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I told people at the top that we were going to talk about complication. What is it that makes your business complicated? There's a few things, and I think it's kind of the evolution of our industry. If you go back to, you know, 50s or prior, there was a finite amount of materials that you used to construct a cabinet or to build an interior space, right? And it was predominantly focused on wood products, right? Plywood or, or solid lumber. And at some point between, say, the 50s and the 70s, before, before my time in our industry, it switched from solely functional needs. You know, I need a box to hold my stuff that opens a drawer and holds my spoons and knives. And it transitioned to fashion. People started expressing themselves the same way they do with their clothing, with their interior spaces. Businesses define themselves. I mean, when you walk into a Target or a Walmart, you know you're in a Target or a Walmart because that space, you know, the color scheme of the kiosks and, you know, the tile that they choose or the linoleum that they choose, it all mirrors each other because they want to create this environment and express their individuality as a company or as a, as a homeowner. And when that happened, a new market opened up of architects and designers. And traditionally, architects focused on the exterior of the space. If you go to Chicago or New York, you could see the, you know, the personalities of the, of the architects just in the, in the exterior facades that they built. And we started to notice that some of the decisions of what was getting bought was made long before anybody started building the product in and of itself. And this was in my CEO's time, Don Laurie, where he started coming across this more and more. And our vendor partners started opening up these new positions that called on architects and designers to influence that buy at the front end. So when you look at our customer list, we actually have two separate sales divisions. One that has zero financial transactions with us at all. Very difficult for us to understand if the money we're investing there is paying fruition because it's a long sales cycle. You know, if someone decides to build a hospital today, we may not get the order for two or three years because there's city permits and concrete and depending on what part of the country you're in, weather plays a big factor in that as well. So it makes kind of tracking our success a very long time period and very difficult to do. Historically, the way we've done it is by hiring people we trust and communicating internally. There's no real first domino you can knock over that says, oh, that was the catalyst that caused this down the yeah, road. Yeah. So the, the complication is, you know, people are making plans many years in advance before they need your products, essentially. And they're being made by these architects or people who are not actual buyers. And we have an entire sales force dedicated to just calling on those folks and finding a way to help them with the solutions they need. We offer a plethora of products from horizontal surfaces like countertops and shower wall systems to our core business, which is, you know, hardware and laminate and, and products that you use for, for case goods. And we've really married that product architecture to give not just the architects and designers the ability to create an entire space. You know, one of, 
our, our kind of new motto is every idea made possible. When we came to that, it was because we had to focus on both sides of the business. We had to make every conceptual idea possible within our product architecture, but we also needed to make the fabrication end to the end user actually building this work as well. And that's an area in our industry that the, the bridge hasn't really been built fully yet. The, the fabricator or the person who's building it, their best friend and their worst enemy is that designer. Because that designer can think of something that, oh my God, this is going to be beautiful. And the fabricator's like, I can't build that. That's, that's impossible. That's not structurally sound or, you know, you don't understand what I have to do to build it. So we kind of look at ourselves as stewards or liaisons between those two entities that nowadays don't exist without each other. Right, right. And I assume there's not a lot of room for error that if something's being specced out ahead of time and it can't work two years later, what do you do? Yeah. How does that happen? Well, and, and timeline, right? I mean, we're facing it now and, and I think the whole world's facing it now. And some of these plans that they had two years ago, they didn't think there was going to be a supply chain crisis, right? When they quote these projects two years ago, they don't think that we're going to have record inflation down the road. So it creates a little bit of chaos and havoc. But in my experience, when that happens, kind of the cream rises, the, the best of the best perform well under that stressful situation. Right. And so your, your sales team that calls on the architects and the influencers, so they're really helping guide the, the process. They're not making a sale. They're just influencing things down the road. They are. They're kind of the curators of the menu. They help that sales team along with our vendor partners influence what our product architecture looks like and influences, you know, what designs we have that are going to be on trend. We really do partner with them and ask them for their expertise. Hey, what are you seeing in six months or 12 months? What, what should we start incorporating into our catalog? What designs do we need to bring in now? to help you in the future. So they benefit our business more than just specking a product for us to capitalize on the finance in the future. They really drive the fashion of our business because they're on the front lines. Gotcha. And it, it, help me understand this. So two years later, they've specked it out for the hospital. It comes to the point where they're going to start working on the job. Do you have to resell your product again at that point? Or is it pretty much done at that point? You know, it's pretty much done at that point. So long as the distributor or the manufacturer has the credibility to provide the service needed, because now you have timeline and dependability that comes into effect and they have a drop dead date on when that project needs to get done. If your inventory or your manufacturer can't produce that product in that time frame. That's when they have to go back to the designer and say, hey, you picked a bad product that we can't rely on. We gain a lot of credibility on both ends when all the fabricators are telling the designers, hey, I'd rather use this product that E.B. Bradley distributes because I can trust that it's going to be there. Because there's this whole bidding process that happens in the beginning that all of them are a part of, right? The architect and designer specs the project out, the GC bids it, and then he goes to the subcontractors who we deal with. And the subcontractors, they have their favorites, right? And they want to exert their influence as much as the designer wants to exert theirs. And there's this kind of gray area in the middle where the war tends to be fought. But if you have the right products and you have the right service, 
that's really where it's won. And, and does it ever work the other way where it's been, you know, you didn't get the influence on a job and two years later they call you up and they're like, oh, we're building this thing. We really need your help. The spec that we had didn't work at all. It happens all the time. And as a sales leader, that makes me very excited and frustrated at the same time. Because <laughs> if it's happening one way, it's happening the other. At the end of the day, what I tend to focus on is customers and relationships. And I try and cascade that down to my team. Because if that architect and designer didn't specify our product at the beginning, while it may be a win that the fabricator is fighting for us and trying to flip that our direction, how do we get that information? How will we build that relationship on the front end so that doesn't happen again? So really servicing both sides of the market gives us a unique opportunity to leverage the information and get us in front of the right people. Definitely. Now, you know, talking about information, how do you find that you're using technology to help you with this? I've heard and seen that technology is on an exponential curve. I'm probably younger than, than most in, in my position, and I've definitely inserted a lot of technology into our sales organization over the last four years, but I'd say the majority of it was injected right when COVID hit. I used to be a national account manager and I was on a plane all the time and I still couldn't see all my customers. And 10 years ago, I was using virtual meetings. I was using GoToMeeting and, you know, at, at that time, it was like a unicorn. No one knew what it was. I would send them a link and they'd think I was trying to fish them or something. So the transition to the kind of virtual sales world wasn't difficult for me to absorb. But when the lockdowns happened, we, we were literally locked out of seeing our customers and our industry is, is very old school. We still have customers today that fax in their orders to us. So getting them to jump on a virtual meeting with you, you'd have to be a fantastic salesman to do you that. You have to, to fax them the Zoom link so exactly. they know what to type into their computer. Exactly. Or, you know, or Carrier Pigeon or Pony Express, whatever. Depends on what state they're in. When we went into lockdown, we had to find things to do. And the first thing we focused on was just cleaning up our digital contact list, right? Hey, we have all these people that we can't see face to face. How do we get them visuals of the products quickly? And it was, hey, scour the business cards, get the emails, let's figure that out. And it gave us a chance to pause and connect the two sides of our business, the specification team and the outside sales team calling on fabricators. And what started is just welfare checks of, hey, let's get everybody together. Let's have a virtual happy hour, you know, because we're a very, you know, communal company. We, we enjoy being together and kind of COVID stripped us from that. And we found a way. And what happened was we'd be having the virtual cocktail hour, or, you know, just a, a welfare check with everybody. And one of the spec refs would say, oh, I did talk to a designer and they have this project that's coming up in two years. And I think it's going to go to this fabricator. And now I'm witnessing this communication happening and I want to turn the dials to make it up, make it happen more. So I whipped out Excel. I put this big, you know, spreadsheet together with everything. It's got the pivot tables, the conditional formatting, the color codes, and we slap it on Microsoft Teams. And now I have both sides of the business communicating with each other. And within a year, we're tracking 384 of these projects, some of them happening next month, some of them, you know, two, three years from now. And ironically, one of the first projects we put on there was a casino project in the Northwest. 
it was a pretty large one. We put that on in May of 2020. Last week, we got the order for it. Wow. It was literally like project number 10 that was on there. And we've had a few come to fruition in between there, obviously. But that one was the model of, okay, we're on to something here. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, I, I know uh, you and I have talked in the past about my love of the movies, and I understand that uh, you know there's a particular movie that really speaks to you about business and sales. Do I have that right? There's far more than one movie. Oh, okay. Excuse me. Yes. <laughs> there is one that, and and it, and it pains me to call it a movie because it's actually a true story, and it's and it's based on a book, and it's it's Moneyball, the the story of the. The 2002 Oakland A's. And now, is this because you're an A's fan? I am not, not an A's, A's fan. fan. Um, I am, uh, I'm a football fan. So I root for the team that's going to end the baseball s- season as early as possible. But <laughs> SoCal native. So I'm obviously a Dodgers fan and, uh, and an Angels fan. But I, I think you have to own multiple pieces of apparel to call yourself a fan. Um, so I can't say that I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> I just root for the the home team and whatever's going to get football season here sooner. But going back to Moneyball, what you know, how do you feel like Moneyball, the book, the movie, the concept influenced you in business? A few ways. I think that there's I'm I'm big on statistics and I think that you know, you can you can't hide behind the numbers and the numbers show you something as long as you're looking in them right and and calculating them right. And for an organization who had the lowest payroll in Major League Baseball by far to do what they did from a statistical perspective. And for the listeners that don't know, you know, Billy Bean and, um, and his group basically looked at baseball differently. It used to be about attracting what was perceived as the best talent and putting together the best roster based on big names and how many home runs they hit. What the Oakland A's did was looked at what actually manufactures wins and it's runs and what manufactures runs, base runners. And when you break something down that simply, there is a formula you can follow. And I think there's something there for all businesses to, to pull from. And for us, we're in the outside sales business of customers and if I want to get more revenue, what drives my revenue? Well, it's customers. And how do I get more customers? Well, it's meaningful customer touches. So if I can find that equation of what the right number is per rep, whatever their, you know, geography is of, Hey, here's what a good sales call looks like. And here's how many you need to get in a certain time period. They're going to have a higher chance of reaching success than, than anybody else. And, from the outside looking in, it may sound like a little bit of big brother, but if you came into our organization, you know that it's about finding the right model because there's a number out there that says too many sales calls are detrimental to your performance as well. So it's kind of that, that combination. And I, and I just found it fascinating that you could take something that everybody, you know, our CEO quotes this all the time and it's attributed to, to Mark Twain, but they don't really know if he said it, but. It's not what you don't know that's going to get you in trouble. It's what you know for certain that just isn't so. And I live every day with, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's some of the smartest thing. One of the smartest phrases you can say 
and I don't know what that right number is, but technology and the intelligence and the work ethic of our entire team is going to help us get closer to that. In 10 years, that number is probably going to be completely different than it is today. So you have to be able to to change. Right, right. No, I think that's really great perspective. I mean, I, I've always felt that, you know, sales and baseball have a lot in common. You know, you win a customer, you lose a customer, you get on base, you don't get on base. You know, it's, it's got a lot of binary steps in there that you can track. So I think that's really great advice. Yeah. And, and you can have high performing individuals on that team and you still lose. You could have low performing in, individuals and still win. If you look at kind of the overall success, there's there's a, a culture that's involved in these successful franchises, right? The Yankees are the Yankees, the Red Sox are the Red Sox, the Dodgers are the Dodgers. And in any season, one of them is going to be up there. And that's not by accident. And then a year later, you have the the Red Sox saying, oh, I see what you're doing over there, Oakland. I need to figure something out. And lo and behold... World Series, here we come. There you go. But you never had to like uh, trade Jason Giambi in the middle of the season as a result of uh, your sales performance, though. You're like, we need, we got to get this first baseman out of here or something like that. Let's hope not. That that gets handled on the interview process. <laughs> exactly, exactly. On the front end. Well, Jonathan, I really appreciate your joining us. I really love talking about this with you, learning about how, you know, your, your company went from one man with a problem with a drawer opener to a big business that you guys are running today and all your perspective on Moneyball and you know what it takes to succeed in this complicated world we've suddenly found ourselves living in. So really, really appreciate your being on the show today. No, and thank you. I think that talking about these things and learning from others is what I attribute my satisfaction in my job to. I learn from people of all different industries. You, for example, I mean, being able to conceptualize what we actually could do with technology. It all happened on a, on a LinkedIn post of, of all things that catapulted me down this, this other road. So uh, I'm less excited to, to listen to this podcast. I'm more excited to listen to your other podcasts with people who are far more intelligent and have much better stories than I do. All right. Well, I'm sure people have enjoyed this one, Jonathan, but if you want to take Jonathan's advice and listen to other podcasts of ours, you know, we do have them all available at spirit.ai backslash podcast, or, you know, of course you can subscribe to them wherever you normally get your podcasts. But if you did like Jonathan and my conversation today and what we had to offer, go ahead and, you know, maybe give us a good review. I'm sure Jonathan would appreciate that. I know I would. And otherwise uh, we really do appreciate everybody tuning in today and we look forward to speaking to you at our next episode.